I hope y'all came prepared today for some good scripture study. I'm telling you, we gonna hop into some good stuff. There's so much cool stuff in John chapter 20. And if you didn't see the title, that's what we're going over. John chapter 20. And I'm so ready to share this with you. But before I do, go ahead and hit the share button. Whether you listen in on your podcast or you got YouTube pulled up, share this with somebody else. Because the good news is not meant for us to just keep to ourselves. We got to share it. We got to give it to anyone who will listen. Go So go ahead and share it because there's some good stuff and you do not want to keep this to yourself. I promise you. I promise you. We're hopping into John chapter 20 and we going through the whole chapter. So get your earbuds in, get nice and cuddle up in your bed. I don't know where you listen to this, but we ready and we going to go through this together. Verse one, early on Sunday morning while it was still dark. Now let me give you some context before we get too far because you got to understand what's happening here. John chapter 20 is giving you the events that happened after Jesus died. This is like right after Jesus died. Jesus died on a Friday and John's giving us the scene for Sunday morning. So this is still fresh. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Now there's something to be said about Mary. I want to take a moment to to talk about Mary. But before I do, there's actually something really cool about the tomb. And I didn't realize this until I really started focusing on it, but there's a lot of symbolism with the tomb that Jesus was buried in and the stone that was covering it. It makes me think back to the beginning of creation, back in the Garden of Eden, because here you had two humans that God made and they were made in his image. And we were meant to just roam the earth in God's presence and we were supposed to be chilling. There was never supposed to be death added into the equation. That's not how God created it. But then Adam and Eve sinned. You know the story. They ate of the fruit. The snake deceived them and they got kicked out the garden. And because of their sin, death was brought into the world. But there's an important reason why they got kicked out the garden. Because in Genesis chapter three, it lays this out. God is thinking to himself and he's going, oh snap. They just ate of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. So they just found out a bunch of things that I wanted to keep them from because they didn't know that it was going to hurt them, but I did. So I was trying to help them. But now that they know all this knowledge, if they eat of the tree of life, then they will have all of this disastrous knowledge that they're not supposed to carry and they'll be immortal. So God saw that as a problem. So he had to kick them out of the garden. And what he did to make sure that they couldn't get back to the tree of life and live forever is he he guarded it. He guarded it. And he blocked it off. So it's as if because of the sins that we made, we catapulted ourselves into death. We catapulted ourselves into this tomb, if you will. And the exit to leave the tomb back into everlasting life was blocked off. It was as if a stone was rolled in front of our tomb and we couldn't exit. So the symbolism I'm trying to portray here is that Jesus allowed himself to go into the tomb because for far too long without Jesus, we were trapped inside this tomb and there was really nothing that people could do to free themselves from the bondage of sin and death. And we could never exit to eternal life. And so Jesus took it upon himself to take the sins that we did and the things that we did that put ourselves in that tomb. And he put himself in our place. And what's so beautiful is that his stone that was blocking the exit to eternal life was rolled away. They tried to roll the tomb. They tried to, they tried to roll the, the stone in front of the tomb to keep Jesus trapped into this uh, tomb of death, 
like we were, but Jesus rolled the tomb away. And here's the beautiful thing is that since Jesus did that for us, since Jesus took what was once blocking our path to eternal life and he pushed it to the side, that means that this tomb that we've been trapped inside since the beginning of creation, since the fall of humanity, that tomb is no longer blocked off from eternal life. So because Jesus rolled the stone away from that tomb, we have our stone rolled away from ours and we can experience that same everlasting life that Jesus Gives. I just wanted to throw that out there. I thought that was so cool and I wanted y'all to see what I was seeing. But I want to get back to Mary because I think it's really important that Mary is the one at the tomb. There's something to be said about that. There's something to be said about Mary having enough faith to go back to where the pain was. To go back to a point where revelation was going to happen, where breakthrough was going to happen, even if she didn't fully know if that was the case, but she had enough faith to go back. And here's how I know that she had a little bit more faith than maybe other people did. Because you notice how Mary was the one there and not the disciples. It's important to know who was there, but it's also important to know who wasn't there. Because Mary wasn't the one rolling around with Jesus when Jesus was letting them know, hey, I'm going to die but I'm going to rise again. Mary wasn't the one that was rolling with Jesus when all these miracles were happening right in front of the disciples' eyes and Jesus was telling them that he was going to die and he was going to rise again. And you would think if anyone was going to be at the tomb, it would have at least been one of the 12 disciples, but it was Mary. Mary had the faith to go back to the tomb, but she was the only one. And it highlights a struggle that we all find in our lives where there are some times where it can feel like we're the only ones that are still believing. We're the only ones that still have enough faith. Even when it seems like it's not going to happen. Even even though Jesus was dead for a couple days and you would have thought if he was going to rise again that it would have happened immediately. Even if God does not show up when or how you think he will. The question is, do you have enough faith? to go back to the tomb and see if what he spoke into existence will really come to pass. See, she may not have thought it would happen. She may not have thought it would happen. We're going to explore why in in the next few verses, but she at least had enough faith to stay. On to verse two, on to verse two. I know that was a long one in verse one. On to verse two. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. I want to highlight what the writer of the gospel of John says about this disciple. And spoiler alert, the writer of the gospel of John is John. And the disciple he's talking about is, well, John. And what's interesting is you'll notice in the gospel of John, he never refers to himself as John. He always refers to himself in a secretive way. And the way he does that is by calling himself the one that Jesus loved or or the disciple that Jesus loved. And he does this here because he says that she ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. So anytime you read that in the gospel of John, just know that that disciple is John himself. And this is important. It's important to highlight because there's a lot of, there's a lot of, of theories 
when you look at the scripture and other commentators that will comment on on uh, Bible verses, especially on the Gospel of John, and a lot of people think that John and Peter kind of had a little rivalry. Not anything harmful, but like a little brotherly, like, oh, I'm I'm a little bit better than you, Peter. I'm a little bit more sophisticated. Jesus loved me more. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we all we all kind of have that, right? We feel like we're better than someone else. Even if it's someone you love, you're like, oh, I wouldn't do what they do. But a lot of people think that John and Peter kind of have this rivalry. And there's some that disagree. There, there's really no consensus on if John and Peter are, you know, rivals or if John's just saying that he's the one that Jesus loved because it's John writing it and he knows that Jesus loved him. But I want to entertain the idea that there was a little bit of like a brotherly um, competitiveness here. And I think that is the case to some degree because there is five different times that John refers to himself in his gospel as the one that Jesus loves. And what's interesting is that four out of those five times, he is calling himself that in direct comparison to Peter. Four out of the five times that he calls himself the one that Jesus loves, it is on the opposite side of Peter. So you can kind of see that there's a little bit of a of a rivalry here, a little bit of competitive nature. And I'm going to prove it to you here in verse three. Check this out. Peter and the other disciple, which is John, started out for the tomb. They both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That is a perfect example of the competitive nature. They both ran, but guess what? Me, John, the one who writing this, I outran Peter. I'm faster, baby. I got that speed. I'm Usain Bolt. That, that, that kind of tends to the competitive side, which I was just talking about. But here's what's interesting. Check out verse five. I don't, I don't want you to miss it. Check this out. He stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived and went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there. So, so notice what happens here. John was all about outrunning Peter. He got there first. That was his story, right? I got there first. Don't worry about me. I'm faster. I'm more dedicated. I, I'm on the run for Jesus. And Peter got there slow. But when John got there and he saw the linen wrappings, he didn't go in. But Peter did. You, you notice the distinction? John ran faster and got to the tomb first. But he didn't have what it took to step inside the tomb first. It was Peter that stepped inside first. And I wonder, I wonder if the reason why John didn't walk in first is because before he got a chance to walk in, he saw something. He saw the linens. He saw the wrappings that covered his king and his Messiah. And they were no longer wrapped around a body, but they were laying. And I wonder, I wonder if the reason why he stopped before he entered the tomb is because when he got to the tomb, what he saw is not what he thought he was going to see. That might've been it. That might've been it. But I really wonder why though. This is something that, that I wonder why you, you really can't have a definitive answer here, but you can kind of speculate. And my hunch is that he saw the linens then stopped. That's interesting. He saw, then he stopped. But Peter didn't stop until he saw. See, one disciple here, John, in this instance, he was led by sight. But then the other disciple, Peter, was led by faith. 
John was going to dictate whether or not he was going to walk into the tomb and take the next step based on what he saw. But Peter went into the tomb blinded without seeing anything to then be able to see what was inside the tomb. And it makes me ask the question, how many times do we stop where God wants us to continue because of what we saw? See, sometimes we let sight dictate our faith to continue. But the test of faith isn't determined on the speed with which you arrive. It's determined on the strength you have to go in. And John here, even though he was being competitive, even though he reached the tomb first, it was what he saw that stopped him from going further to truly seeing what happened to his king. But it was Peter, even though he didn't arrive first, he had the faith to go in before he saw On the verse 7, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings, Jesus even had the decency to fold his dirty laundry before he walked out the tomb. Ain't that funny? Verse 8, then the disciple who had reached the tomb first, we're talking about John. So John who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. So at first he didn't go in because he let what he saw stop him from going further. But here, He finally went into the tomb. And once he saw what was on the other side of his hesitation, he believed. What happens when you don't stop at what you see? When you don't allow your faith to be strengthened by sight? You know, because the word says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. And I wonder how many times do we stop because of what it looks like is on the path ahead of us? How many times do we stop when it looks like we're about to reach a point that's going to be too difficult? When we reach a point that seems like there is nothing greater on the other side, how many times do we stop before God's able to fully uh, fully complete the path that he has us on? We stop because we see a roadblock. We stop because we see a pothole. We stop because we see a hurdle. And because we stop, we're not able to see the finish line that is on the other side. All right, we're starting at verse nine. Got no commentary here. It's just a bunch of great content, but we got to get through it. Verse nine, for until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that Jesus or that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they have put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them this message. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, peace be with you. 
As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now here's the good part. Verse 24. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wounds in his side. Ain't that crazy? I'm about to go in on Thomas. Can I roast Thomas for a second? I'm only roasting him because we do the same thing. It's not even roasting him. It's just pointing out the obvious that we even tend to do in our life. Look at Thomas here. They're like, yo, we just saw Jesus. And Thomas like, I ain't going to believe it until Jesus roll up here, pop open a can of Coke and let me shake his hand. But look, Thomas has that faith where you have to see it. He has that faith by sight faith. He has that faith that the scriptures tell us not to have. He has the faith where he needs to see before he will believe. He has that faith where he needs action before he will give you a reaction. Thomas, that dude that still don't believe even after seeing Jesus do miracles time and time again. Thomas, that dude that won't believe that Jesus is really risen from the dead, even though Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead not too long before. Thomas is that dude that won't believe that Jesus raised from the dead when he saw all those things and was part of all those things. And then even his disciples, which were his closest brothers, rolled up to him and said, yo, dude, uh, we saw Jesus. And Thomas is that dude that represents us because we do the same thing. How many times y'all say things like, God, if you really love me, if you're really there for me, if you're, if you're really here, just give me a sign. <laughs> God, if this is the job for me, I pray that you just show me, just show me, God, if it's the job, I'll have faith that it's the job. If you just show me that it's the job, God, if this is, is the woman for me, if this is the man for me, just just have them tell me. Just give me some type of signal that this is the person for me. See, <laughs> Thomas is that person that represents us. And oftentimes, we can fall into the trap of being billboard believers. What's a billboard believer? Let me tell you what a billboard believer is. A billboard believer is the type of person that will only believe that God will or that God can or that God wants if you see a huge sign on the side of the road that says, yes, turn here. Yes, God loves you. Yes, keep going. That's what a billboard believer is. And the sad part is, is even if God were to put up a big billboard that said, turn here, most of us wouldn't believe it. We'd keep on going. We would ignore God anyway. What's interesting here is that when you look at the commentaries, and there's been a lot of uh, of scholars and theologians and, and Bible nerds that will look at Thomas here and they'll call him Doubting Thomas, right? They'll give Thomas a nickname, Doubting Thomas. And they'll roast Thomas because it right here, it looks like he's doubting. I can understand it. I won't believe unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. That sounds like a little bit of doubt, but I look at it a little bit different. I don't think Thomas is doubting. I think what Thomas is doing is testing. So maybe we can call him Testy Thomas. That's a, that's a good name. Testy Thomas. Forget doubting Thomas. We're going to call him Testy Thomas. Why? Because instead of doubting and saying, oh, I don't think Jesus really rose from the dead. He said, I won't believe. I'm giving Jesus a test. If he wants me to believe, he going to have to do this. He going to have to live up 
to the stipulations I put in place. That's the testing, Thomas. See, it's weird. It's weird that we think that we can test God. Like we can give God a test as to how faithful he is or how much he loves us. We, it's almost like it's almost like we think that God is supposed to be subjected to our tests. As if we have any questions that God's not going to know. It, we think that, that God is supposed to be subjected to our test, even though he has told us time and time again who he is, what he does, why he does it, how much he loves us. He tells us all the answers that we need to the questions that we have in life. But sometimes we feel like we can just test God. Isn't it funny that although nobody wants to be tested, we got no problem testing God. We'd rather test God than be tested. But this is testing Thomas. Because Thomas put a stipulation on his belief. That's the worst thing you can do. He put a stipulation on his decision to put faith in the Messiah that he's already seen miracles do. The worst thing you can do for your faith is put a stipulation on it. What does that look like? I'll believe if. That's what a stipulation looks like. I'll only believe God if. And see, Thomas had an attitude of if I don't, then I won't. If I don't see the wounds and put my fingers where the nails were in his hands, then I won't believe. We do this all the time. If I don't get a raise in my job, then I won't believe that God wants to take care of me. If I don't get married before I'm 30, then I won't believe that God wants me to find love. We'll put all these stipulations on our faith. We have the if I don't, then I won't mentality, but he also has the if I will or if I do, then I will attitude. If I do see the nails in his hands, then I will believe. If I do see Jesus in the flesh, then I will believe. If God does do this for me, then I will Believe we need to be careful to not put stipulations on our faith and be like testy Thomas, where we think that we can just test God into doing what we want him to do. On to verse 26, we almost there. Eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time, Thomas, testy Thomas, testing Thomas, doubt Thomas, whatever you want to call him, Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. But suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. <laughs> Yo, y'all realize that this is twice now in one story that Jesus just broke into these into this crib? Like, y'all know, the doors were locked. And Jesus just said, I'll let myself in. Don't worry about it. He just floated in. <laughs> Jesus just said, I don't care that you got locked doors. I'm just going to intrude. Jesus was an intruder, like like literally in the real sense, Jesus was intruding on their meeting. They had a locked door for a reason. They didn't want nobody to come in. And Jesus said, I'm going to walk in and I'm going to get up in your situation. How many of y'all wish that Jesus would just come break into your heart? Like just, I know you got chains around your heart and I know some of y'all want to safeguard things and keep things and you don't want to talk about certain things, but I promise you, y'all wish deep down that Jesus would just come break in to your heart and start rearranging things and start doing things for the better. And some of y'all thinking that's creepy. You're like, I don't want no, 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 I don't want nobody to break into my home, break into my heart. That's creepy. He ain't have no right to do that. But honestly, if you think about it, that's what you really need. You really need Jesus to just say, I'm a, 
I know you got the door lock, but I'm Jesus. Like I'm, I'm the word became flesh. If I just want to hop into your situation. See, a lot of us think that when God hops into our situation, that he's going to do it to judge. And that's why we have our, 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 our heart locked. We lock off our lives. We lock off so many things from so many people because we think that if we unlock the door and we let people in, that they're just going to judge. And we hear all these stories from, from churches. And I just want to say right off the bat, if, if you were a part of a church at one time that judged you and told you that if you dressed a certain way, if you looked a certain way, that, that you were sinning and you were going to go to hell. Let me just tell you, that's not true at all. God does not want to come into your situation to judge. God already knows that you're a sinner. And he's already died for the forgiveness of your sins. This is how I know this is true. Look when Jesus rolled up and intruded into their locked door session. What did he do? Did Jesus roll up there and say, what the heck y'all doing? Like I told y'all, I'm going to rise up from the dead. And you out here crying, moping around. Like get, did Jesus walk up in there and say, Thomas? Look at your stupid behind, not believing. Get out of my face. You ain't no longer a disciple. No, no, Jesus didn't go in there and judge. Look at what Jesus said. And he did this both times. He broke into their situation. And what did he do? He said, peace be with you. Many of us keep things locked up because we're afraid that God will judge us. But God wants to break into your heart. Not so he can judge you. Not so he can look at everything you have hidden in the corners and squint his eyes and get a little nauseous from what he's seeing. God wants to break into your heart so he can stand in the middle of it and say, peace be with you. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. To wrap up this entire chapter, I can wrap it up in one way. I can wrap it up with the image of love that Jesus has for every single one of us. And the power to supply the needs of everybody involved from Mary going back to the tomb to not even realizing that it was Jesus to John and Peter having a race and having a little rivalry to Thomas doubting and testing Jesus through all of the shortcomings through the disciples not even believing that Jesus was going to rise from the dead when he told him through all of the shortcomings Jesus was not hesitant to extend love and peace. And he wants to do the same thing for you. I hope y'all enjoyed this scripture study. Ooh, this was so good. This was so good. Yo, once again, share this with your friends and family. Let them get in on this. This is not just for you. The word is supposed to be shared with everybody. I thank y'all so much for watching. We're going to have another episode on the podcast later this week, and I will catch y'all then. Peace out.